wonderful singing, wonderful words. Um, just a blessed morning, uh, being reminded of God's grace and mercy and love and, and uh, reflecting on it in all kinds of different ways, right? Isn't, isn't that the variety that God has given to us to reflect on it in song and hearing scripture read and talking to one another and just constantly cultivating uh, the truth of God's promises in our heart and life. And it's just a joy to do that this morning, and we're going to continue doing that as we uh, go back to the Gospel of John and uh, pick up in John uh, chapter 8. So you can take your Bibles and turn there. Uh, this morning we're going to look at uh, verses 31 uh, to 59. So you'll remember last week in verse 30, uh, John told us that after Jesus presented himself as the light of the world, right, the light of the world, uh, John actually says that many uh, believed in him. Now, John doesn't say what kind of belief it was. Uh, that's going to become clear as we go through this passage. But we've already seen in John's gospel that there is a spurious uh, kind of faith. Um, in chapter 2, verse 23 to 25, for instance, we are told that many believed in his name because of the signs he was doing, uh, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them. In other words, John says Jesus did not believe in their belief. He didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. He knew that this belief in him was not a genuine belief, but it was, it was a kind of a fake or spurious kind of belief. And then we're also told in um, John 6, verse 66, um, that after Jesus presents himself as the bread of life, many disciples no longer walked with him. When they heard his teaching and they saw his signs, they were enamored and excited about it. But eventually, uh, the more that Jesus explained about what that looked like, uh, these disciples turned away and no longer walked with him. They said, who can bear to hear these things? And so they left as well. And so we see here in John chapter 8, I think, the same kind of belief. And the reason I think this is the same kind of belief is because by the time we get to the end of this chapter, the very people who are said to believe in him in John chapter 8, verse 30, they actually turn out to be, you'll see in this passage, they turn out to be slaves to sin. Uh, they turn out to be uninterested in Jesus's word. Uh, they turn out to be, as Jesus calls them, children of the devil. Whoa, that's pretty heavy. They turn out to be liars, and they turn out to be murderers in heart and action because at the very end, what do they do? They actually pick up stones to throw at Jesus and to kill him. So far from being a genuine belief in Jesus this is a very spurious kind of faith. Does that kind of faith still happen today? You bet it does. There are people who will claim all kinds of things about Jesus, 
and in the end, they really want to pick up stones to throw at him the more he reveals about himself and his word. In any case, Jesus is going to draw out this spurious faith. He's going to do it in verses 31 to 32. And the way that he does it, he draws their attention to what separates fake faith from genuine faith or false disciples from genuine disciples. Um, He just kind of lays it before them. Okay, if you believe, if you're truly my disciple, here's what it looks like. So he just lays it out there, and their response is going to be a picture as he draws it out of them of the um, falseness of their belief. Because they will object to what Jesus is saying, and they're going to object to it, his, his statement that um, Jesus alone can make you free. They object to that. And that's really where they, they want to say, wait a minute, we hear what you're saying, Jesus, but we're not believing in you to set us free because ultimately we are free. And they point to their physical lineage. So they appeal to their physical lineage with Abraham. They point to their spiritual heritage of Abraham. And they point to their religious heritage. So if you want to take notes, those are the three objections, physical, spiritual, religious, verse 33, 39, and 41b. And uh, this is what, they're, what you ultimately see their faith is in. And then verses 47 to 59, um, their reaction ultimately confirms exactly what Jesus knew about them, their faith. Their reaction to Jesus is confirmation that their belief wasn't genuine, verse 47 to 59. So uh, join with me as we ask the Lord um, to bless us, but as we read his word, and then uh, join with me in reading God's word. We pick up in verse 30, we'll start. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said, To the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. 
We have one Father, even God. Jesus said to them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. What a marvelous testimony that John has written for us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, a truth that is laid before us of a conversation between Jesus and these professing, believing Jews, where Jesus makes himself known to them, and the more that he makes himself known, the more they reject him. And even in this passage, we see that Jesus ultimately ends by making himself known as the great I am. Yahweh, the Lord of the Old Testament, incarnate, standing before them, even there. And when he makes himself known, they want to stone him. 
Lord Jesus, we thank you for making yourself known to us and for overcoming our rebellion, for giving us eyes to see, and we pray that even this morning as we continue to look at this passage in a bit more detail, that we would examine our own faith, that we would make sure that it is resting in you alone, that we are believing in you for who you are and you have revealed yourself to be and not for who we want you to be, but for, for who you are, the great I am, Yahweh, Lord, Master, and Savior. We ask that you would bless your word to our hearts and bless the preaching of it, for it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So you can see John picks up here and says, Jesus spoke to those who profess to believe in him in verse 30, and he puts this call before him. And this is, not, this is something Jesus has done does through his ministry for people that want to follow him. Um, Jesus calls people to faith. He calls them to believe. John's gospel's written so that we would believe. But usually what will happen is when people come to follow Jesus in the gospels and they, they want to believe and they want to be a disciple, Jesus usually has them count the cost of following him. Um, for instance, in Luke 14, 26 to 33, Jesus turned to all these people who were following him, and he said to the great crowd, he said, you must be willing to lose everything to follow me. You must be willing to suffer on account of me if you wish to follow me. I mean, that's a bold call, right? He does the same thing in Luke 9, 23. To, these are just a couple examples. Luke 9, 23 to 26. Listen to how he puts it here. He says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. You see, that's a really bold and strong claim, call. Because there's a lot of people who who want Jesus, but they want Jesus to be, um, to not cost them much. They, they want what you might call, uh, and has been called, easy believism. Have you ever heard of that, that phrase, easy believism? It just basically says, you know what, all that Jesus, all you have to do to, to be a Christian is believe in Jesus' name in some way. And in fact, I read one one thing where uh, the guy was saying I forgot where I read it but he said you know what he does as an evangelist he he goes in his car and he writes the name Jesus on a piece of paper and then when he is driving around he crumbles up the piece of the paper or big whatever it is and he throws them out the window but not to mention okay that's littering right but besides that point this is his way of evangelizing because someone, he thinks, might pick up the paper and then open it and then read the name Jesus. And then when they read the name Jesus, 
they, they might in some way believe in, in Jesus and by believing that they'll be saved. And he, his job's done, right? They believed in Jesus and his name, and he goes off his merry way. And, and there are people that think that they do these altar calls in churches and whatever, and, and they give an emotional appeal to people, and then they say, based on this emotional appeal, just walk up the aisle. Who wants to give their life to Jesus? Walk up the aisle, raise your hand, come on. They sign on the dotted line. They follow all the steps, and then that person is, believes in Jesus, and so that person's saved. I mean, they signed on the dotted line. They said the sinner's prayer, and therefore that person is, is a Christian. This is... Um, a lesson that Israel had to learn and one that they failed to learn in the Old Testament. The idea of easy believism, of just believing in Jesus' name, is something that uh, Old Testament Israel had to learn, but it's, it's something that we still need to come to terms with of what it means to believe and follow Jesus. Um, you know, there had a, met a missionary at the Shepherds Conference from India, and he said one of the challenges that they have in India is that if you know anything about Indian Hinduism, right, there's 330 plus million gods. And so when you share the gospel with them, they're all the more inclined to accept Jesus. Like, you'll tell them about Jesus as a god, and he said the challenge is, is he goes, you don't really know if it's real. Because they'll accept it. They'll say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. And really what they mean is they're just taking Jesus and incorporating him among all of the other gods that there are because it's, it's just their way of doing it. You might even think of it as, um, as a way that, forget Hindus even, but as a way even Western Christians can do it. But they don't incorporate Jesus as a professing Christians, I should say. It's not that they're incorporating Jesus into the myriad of their other gods, but a lot of people will accept and incorporate Jesus, and you might say, um, as an insurance policy. Uh, there was one philosopher in the 17th century, I remember reading about, his name was Pascal Bias, I think Pascal, and he wrote what was called Pascal's Wager. And I went to a church camp, and it was when I was 16 years old, and and the guy that I was at was kind of sharing the gospel, and, and he basically presented the gospel in a Pascal's wager. And really what that is to say is, is accept God, basically, because it's the, the best bet that you have. Because he, and he put it this way, he said, come to Jesus, it's the best bet you have. Because if Jesus is not true, what do you lose? That's what he said. If Jesus is not true, what do you lose? You know, you live a good life, you live a moral life, things go pretty good for you, you do what you're supposed to do, so you have, no, you have nothing to lose. But if you accept Jesus and he is true, well, hey, you gain the entire world. Do you see how he's presenting it? So just, just take Jesus and believe in him so you have an insurance policy so that when you die, at least you can die and say, I believed in Jesus. This is the kind of belief that is not genuine, it's, it's not real, 
It comes for people in all kinds of fashions. Some people believe because of peer pressure, because their spouse does, because of a camp. I mean, whatever the reason is, there is a fact that Jesus knows that there are those who say they believe in him, but when it really comes down to it, and he puts his finger on the heart of the man, as he does here with the Pharisees, and he says, okay, this is what it means to believe in me. This is when they run. And this is what he does. He says, their view of what it meant to be children of Yahweh was deficient in the Old Testament, and it's deficient here. In Jeremiah 7, they claimed his name, claimed his name, but they persistently rebelled. And this is what is happening here. And so Jesus tells these Jews, here's the key. You want to be my disciple? If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In other words, being a true disciple does not mean that you assent to what Jesus is saying about himself like Old Testament Israel. It doesn't just mean I agree with Jesus. A true disciple, Jesus says, will accept what I am saying, but they will accept what I am saying as the very words of Yahweh. And they will remain in his words. They will obey his word. They will embrace his word. They will submit to his word. And Jesus says, that one will know the truth, will know the gospel, and the gospel will set them free. When you hear Jesus' words, you're not just assenting to them, but you're knowing them. And what you're knowing about what Jesus is saying is all that Jesus came to do. It means that you know that you are a sinner. You know that you are enslaved to sin. You know that you are in need of a savior. You know that you cannot earn your way into heaven. You know that you are not good enough on your own. You know that you need someone to make atonement for your sin. You know that you need someone to shed their blood because otherwise you will face the judgment of God. This is what it means when Jesus says to know the truth. If you're my disciple, you will know the truth about who you are and who I am. And when you know that truth, he says, my disciple will be set free by that truth. Now, when these Pharisees hear that and they hear set free, they're naturally thinking, free from what? And maybe some of you are thinking that. I don't think so. I think everyone here is um, a believer. But there are people will, will say, free from what? What's wrong with me? What am I enslaved to? Why do I even need Jesus? What, what am I here for? Why do I need Jesus? What is it Jesus wants to give me that I don't already have? This is what the world thinks. They think that they are free. And even these Pharisees, they think they're free. And they don't understand what Jesus is saying. And, and they're, they're saying, free from what? And Jesus, what he's talking about 
He's talking about being free from enslavement to sin, being free from condemnation, being made free from darkness and separation from God. True disciples will truly believe in the gospel and they will live according to God's word in the gospel and they will be made free by Jesus who is the gospel and he will be brought into the light of God's grace and glory and he will persevere in that faith. He will hold tight to Jesus. He will hold tight to his words instead of being indifferent to them and rejecting them. And so here, they hear this statement. They believed in some sense what Jesus was saying was true, but they ultimately don't understand that they even need a Savior. You see, they could accept many things about Jesus, but one thing they couldn't accept was that they were in spiritual darkness. They couldn't accept the fact that they really, really needed a Savior. And so what did they do? Well, they appealed to their bloodline. They appealed to their physical lineage. This is why they answered him, and they said, we are offspring of Abraham. And we've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So what they're saying is as they're evaluating their belief in Jesus and what Jesus is saying, he'll make them free. They're saying, well, wait a minute. I have this physical lineage. I have this privilege that comes through Abraham that tells me that I'm, we're not spiritually darkened. We're not like Gentiles. We're not like the pagans. We've been given these truths as Abraham's offspring and lineage, and because we are privileged and we are sons of the kingdom, God made promises to us in the Old Testament. We're sons of the kingdom. We belong to God. We're of that lineage. How can you say we're spiritually darkened? Jesus, we're not enslaved like Gentile nations. How is it you say we will become free? We don't need spiritual liberation. And I can just see this happening with people today. People being, especially those raised in a church or in a context of the gospel, and almost they think by osmosis and because of their relationship that they're saved. They're saved because they hear truth. They're saved because their parents were saved or their cousins were saved or whatever it is. And they appeal to their physical lineage. And this happens a lot in the Anglican church. In fact, I met a guy, the DMV, the other day. I got to call him this week. He was, he was in his, I think his 90s. I took Nicole to get her test, to get her permit, which she passed. Yay, good job. She passed her test. But I sat down and, you know, the DMV can be a really kind of depressing place, kind of sad. And so everyone's just miserable in there and took Nicole and I sat down and, and I, this older gentleman, you know, comes walking real slowly up and uh, Scottish guy, English guy. And I said, hey, you know, I struck a conversation with them, let's see. 
So we started talking and chatting, and, and for the whole 45 minutes, he's talking to me about his life and learning all kinds of interesting things, and we're having a, a nice dialogue, and I asked him about his faith and asked him if he's you know, a, a, a Christian, and he said initially, because he was drilling oil rigs, that was what he did. He was an engineer for oil rigs. He went to Venezuela and all this other place. And, and initially, when I talked to him about uh, faith, he said, well, I think I did more good on the oil fields. Because I said, were you like a missionary? And he said, no, I, I think I did more good for the world with oil, oil fields, right? So I thought, oh, that's interesting. I don't know where he's at. We kept talking. I found out he's Anglican. And so he's an Anglican, but clearly... He didn't really ever profess faith in Christ. He just professed that he's an Anglican. He never said he believed in Jesus. He never trusted him. In fact, he, he thought he was good because of the oil field thing. And so it was interesting to me at the very end of the conversation, it was nice. We shook hands. He gave me his card, his number. I'm gonna, hopefully, Lord willing, I'm going to give him a call this week. But, but after talking to him, it was striking because he said to me, oh, it's good to meet another Christian. And I just thought, he thinks he's a Christian because he's an Anglican, right? But he didn't, didn't get, never doesn't go to church, doesn't go anywhere, didn't profess faith in Christ, didn't really say anything that indicated that he was of the gospel or of the Lord Jesus Christ. But to him, in his mind, and I could be wrong about this, okay, and I pray that I'm, I'm wrong, maybe, maybe he really is Christian, but it just struck me that it seemed that he was appealing to the fact that he has this lineage of Anglicanism. And because he's an Anglican, he's therefore a Christian. And we can talk to one another as Christians. So remains to be seen what happens, but I think that's what the Pharisees are doing here. They're saying, we're not enslaved. We're not enslaved. We have the lineage of Abraham. And so Jesus answers them. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, here's, here's an axiom he puts before them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So who is included in this truly, truly axiom? Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What humans are included in that axiom? Everyone. Everyone, right? Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin because every human ever born is born, with the exception of Christ, is born in sin, and by nature they sin. And by nature and behavior, we all fall short of the glory of God. And he says, and just as a slave does not remain in the master's house forever but only a son who truly belongs remains in a master's house. So no one who is a slave to sin has a right to belong in the house of God. Do you see what he's saying? No one who is a slave of sin has a right to be in the house of God because they are not a son of God. They are slaves to sin. So they don't have a right. This is what Jesus is telling them. 
No one who is a slave of sin belongs in the house of God. And you know who else that includes? It includes Abraham. Jesus is include. They know Jesus is including Abraham. Not even Abraham has a right to be in the house of God. People manifest sin in different ways. Gentiles manifest it more than Jews in this context, but no one can escape the reality that all Jew and Gentile by nature are enslaved to sin and no one is free from sin and no one has a right to be in God's house. And this really struck them right to the heart because this was their identity. Their identity and their self-assurance came from the fact that if anyone belongs in the house of God, it's us. We are the sons of God. We are not slaves. We have the right bloodline, the right lineage. And Jesus tells them, no, there's only one son who belongs. Isn't that awesome? There's only one son who belongs in the house of God. Only one. And the only one who belongs in the house of God is the one who is here to set you free. Jesus is presenting himself to them as the son of God and the one son that belongs in the house of God is standing right before you and I'm telling you that if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You will be saved. You will be taken into the house of the Father. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, truly free. And he, not Abraham, sets you free. You will become children of God, sons and daughters of light, just as Abraham became a child of God. And how is it that Abraham became a child of God? By what? By faith. By faith in the Son of God. This is how you enter into God's house. You're not going to remain in that house. You're not going to be a son unless the Son himself, the Son of God, sets you free by faith. Now, Jesus is the one true offspring promise who was the promised son of Abraham. The promise is made to the seed, not many, but one, and that seed is Jesus. So, for example, you turn to Galatians 3. Galatians 3, and I know we're not going to get through our entire John section here, but in Galatians 3... This is so important because here Paul is confronting false teachers right, who were undermining uh, the gospel by grace through faith, and they were trying to, these Jewish believers were trying to bring in um, lots of laws and take people back to circumcision and so on. And Paul writes this letter and he's kind of rebuking them and he calls them foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And so as he's defending the gospel and, and starting to have them think about the fact that it's not by the law, but it's by God's grace. He says to them in uh, verse 6, he says, 
just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he's saying, listen, you're going away from the gospel, but you have to remember that we're saved by faith because just like Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteous, he says, so it is, it's true of us. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. Okay, that was what he told Abraham. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with who? Along with Abraham, the man of faith. So he's saying there's this promise was given to Abraham. Abraham was saved by faith. God made a promise to Abraham, the man of faith. And all of us, including Abraham, are blessed by that promise. Does that make sense? We're, we're blessed in the promise that God gave to Abraham. Abraham was saved by faith in this promise. And so then he goes on and he says in... in um, there in verse 16, he says, The promises were made to... No, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. Verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So Jesus hung on the cross, became a curse for us, so that in Jesus Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Okay, in Christ. Verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. So these promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to how many? One. And to your offspring, who is Christ. He is the offspring to whom the promise was made. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God, what? Through faith. So Jesus is the promised offspring. In Jesus, we are all sons of God through faith, just like Abraham was. Jesus is the only offspring of Abraham who is without sin the only son who can make slaves become children of God, along with Abraham. Jesus makes slaves, makes sons and daughters who are slaves now welcomed in the house of God because he is the son of God to whom the promises were made. And Jesus, by faith in him, then we receive all of those promises and so Jesus says to them in verse 37, he says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. I know you have an earthly lineage with Abraham. He says, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. In other words, he's saying, you are seeking to do what the true sons of Abraham would never do. They receive me and my word by faith. They would abide in my word like Abraham, yet you seek to kill me and silence me, 
They would welcome my word like Abraham, but you reject it. They would live by my word like Abraham, yet you are indifferent to it. They would be like trees planted by streams of water, yet you want to cast me out. How you are responding to my word is an indication that you have a father very different than mine and very different than Abraham's. Abraham knew me by faith, but you don't. Jesus says, I speak of what I have seen with my father. I speak the same words Abraham heard, and he believed and abided, and yet you want to kill me. And so they answered him, Abraham is our father. We follow the same God that Abraham heard and followed. We have a spiritual heritage. We've not wavered from our spiritual heritage. We seek to do the will of God whom Abraham believed in. We're simply following in his steps. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. You see, he's building up to it because he's going to tell them who their father is. The more that they push and the more that they push, the more Jesus is revealing to them, you're not this, you do not know the father your rejection of me and my words is an indication that you're enslaved to sin. I'm talking to you. I'm letting you know, but you're not getting it. And then they say, we are not born of sexual immorality. We have even fa Father, one God. And Jesus tells them, if God were your father in the way he is the father to Abraham, you would believe me. I don't want to rush through this, but I think the reminder here in their objections, and we're going to pick up again on the spiritual heritage, but the reminder here to us, I think the takeaway is this. When you say you believe in Jesus, you need to believe in all of Jesus. In his words, you need to abide in his word. You need to be in his word because that's what true disciples do. And believing in Jesus means believing in all that Jesus says about your sin and his coming to redeem you of your sin. Um, and that's the call that he gives to, to each and every one of us. That's the good news of the gospel. You can be delivered if you come to Christ by faith. That's what Abraham did. That's what a son of Abraham does. Um, they believe on Christ, and so they reject him, but he will make himself known to them at the end of this chapter in a very significant way as he finally gets down to it when they reject him ultimately, and he says, you still don't get it, but I am, that's it, I am, I am Yahweh, and the same God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, and I'm here to present myself to you that you might be saved. That's good news because we have been saved, beloved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. And this is such a deep passage. There's so much truth here that it's so easy to get lost in the weeds and, and to really miss the big picture. And 
And so, Lord, we have come back to that simple yet profound truth that we, like the Pharisees, are enslaved or were enslaved to sin. And we had no spiritual heritage to speak of that could redeem us because we are not saved by our lineage and our families. We're not saved uh, based of our, off our spiritual heritage. We're not based off of religion, but we're based off of faith, saved by means of faith in the Son of God, in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one Son that belongs in the house of God. And it is only through you, Lord Jesus, that we can be redeemed. It's only by your sacrifice and your blood and, and the gift of your spirit that we are accepted in your sight. We know, Lord Jesus, that we have sinned and done what is deserving of death and condemnation. But we know that your promises are greater and that your word is true and that you are faithful to redeem those who have believed in you. And, and Lord, we, we profess our faith in you truly believing in you. We long as your people to abide in your word, Lord Jesus, and to obey it. We confess that we don't always do that well and we struggle along the way. We know that we don't always do what you called us to do and sometimes we are rebellious children even to that end. And we're not perfect. We are not perfect fathers. We are not perfect mothers. We are not perfect husbands and and wives. We're not perfect friends. We, we fail in so many ways, and it hurts us to fail, and it hurts us when we don't abide in your word. And it is really easy for people to make accusations against us and to call us out because we are so guilty, and yet we are reminded that we are not saved because we are perfect, and no matter what the world says about us, and no matter how Satan accuses us before you, and no matter how much guilt that he seeks to heap on us, oh, we know, Father, that Christ has paid it all and that he has removed our guilt and our shame and our weakness. And we come humbly before you, Lord Jesus. We ask you to forgive us, to restore us, to enable us to walk according to your word that we might abide in it. Help us to know the truth and to rest in the truth that you have set us free. We praise you in your name. Amen.